Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series featuring David Frum's opinion, analysis, and insights exclusively for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great analysis, news, and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The next voice you'll hear is Sean Spear in conversation with David Frum. Enjoy. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. We have something special for you today. David Frum has established himself as one of the most interesting and incisive thinkers on policy and politics across the Anglosphere over the past 25 years. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and is a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. What some viewers may not know, before David rose to prominence in American politics and policy, he was a frequent commentator in Canada, writing for The National Post, Saturday Night, and other publications. We're honored and thrilled to be able to give David a new platform to share his thoughts and insights on a biweekly basis here at The Hub. We're calling these conversations, which viewers will be able to find every second Friday, from Dialogues. David, thank you for joining me, and thank you in advance for what no doubt will be an interesting and thought-provoking series on issues related to Canadian politics, policy, and so much more. Thank you, Sean. It's such a pleasure to join you. I thought we'd kick off the series with a conversation about COVID-19 in general, and the divergence between how the United States and Canada have responded to the crisis in particular. You spend time in both countries, as do I. As we mark the two-year anniversary of the pandemic, it's striking how the province of Ontario remains subject to various public health restrictions, and yet most U.S. states have, for all intents and purposes, returned to normal. In terms of the big picture, how should we think about the divergent responses in Canada and the U.S.? What does it tell us about the culture and politics in the two countries? Well, I think often about a, an experience I had in the first summer of COVID, in the summer of 2020. My wife and I have a house in Prince Edward County, about 200 kilometers east of Toronto. And it was diff- we want we were very keen to get up there. It was very difficult to do that first summer, but we were able to do it. And there were very strict quarantine rules at the time, and we were we complied with them. But on day 14, we emerged to go do some grocery shopping, and we went to the um, nearby store. And at that point, there was no vaccines, but then there were intense cultural debates over masking in the United States. And there's all the, there are many, many videos of people being difficult about it on YouTube and in, in their local stores. And because this is such a rural place, I had a question. I'd, I hadn't seen anybody for 14 days. So I go out to get the paper towels and things like that. And I go to our lo- local store and did my shopping and in a mask and asked one of the, the women who worked there whether they'd had any similar kinds of incidents. And forgive me for mim- mimicking her accent, but it's part of the story. She said to me, Oh, oh, no, no, there's been no trouble. There's a sign on the door. <laughs> she didn't say, she should have, it would have made the joke better if she'd added, and it's from the government. But she didn't say that. <laughs> but there's a sign on the door, so you wear a mask. I don't think you can compare Canada and the United States because there have been many different American responses. They vary enormously by region and by state. And so in the Northeast, the response was much more similar to what was going on in Canada. In the Southeast, very, very different from what the pattern in Canada. But I, I would say that, 
to hazard a generalization, Canada excelled at the parts of the COVID response that required a great deal of social cohesion. And because there's been so much uncertainty and mystery about COVID, we've you've often had to comply with things that no one was quite sure were a good idea and sometimes turned out not to be good ideas. It turned out we didn't need to do all that cleaning of surfaces and we didn't need the plexiglass dividers. Those were silly and, and you didn't need to mask, mask outside either. But still, you, you go along, it's a society, you go along, get along and, and Canadians excelled. The parts of the story that required technological innovation, Canada did not do so well. And that is a, a weak point in Canadian society. And so Canada got the vaccines much later than the United States did and yet was able to have a much more successful vaccine program in the United States because that's where the social cohesion kicked in. At this point, and this is maybe the most relevant thing to say for looking at the future, that what we're also seeing in the two societies is the difference between the effects of having a highly polarized political system, as they do in the United States, and a much less polarized political system. Now, the evil of polarization is that everything becomes a fight. Even such a thing as, should you vaccinate against a vaccine-preventable disease? How could you argue about that? And yet Americans find a way to argue about it. Canada, with a multi-party system, so it's not you don't get polarization because there are three sides or four sides to most questions, not just two. And also with a stronger emphasis on consensus, doesn't have that kind of insane bickering that the Americans do. But it also means it's harder to have real debate when debate is needed. And there are trade-offs. And especially at this point in the progress of the pandemic, when for most people, the pandemic is becoming less dangerous. If you're vaxxed and boosted, there's no guarantee you won't get something. But as many have experienced, you don't get much. And the question is, is it really worth closing down your economy and especially interfering with the education of young people in order to protect against what look like minor risks for most people. That's something you want to talk about. And the choices seem to be in Canada, don't talk about it. And in the United States, yell about it. I'll come back to the question of polarization in a minute, because I think it's, a, it's such a fascinating line of, of conversation. But if we can just come back uh, for a minute, David, to the divergent response within the United States, you, you, you rightly observe that there's no single American response that we saw different responses between blue states and red states and all wrapped up in this question of polarization. As someone who spent a lifetime in the world of conservative ideas and conservative politics, was there something inevitable that conservatives would have been skeptical of public health restrictions and vaccine mandates and so on? Or, or does it surprise you from the kind of philosophical basis, given that conservatives ostensibly are concerned about order and stability and other virtues like that, that this became a contest between progressive ideas and conservative ideas in a way? Yeah, it's a profound question. And of course, you have to be careful about your answer. But my assessment is it was highly contingent. It didn't have to be this way in the United States. And maybe the original sin of what happened with COVID was this. Donald Trump in 2019 got himself into a huge trade dispute with China. And by the end of 2019, it was clear this trade dispute was weighing heavily on the stock market. Now, the stock market is not a super important indicator going into a general election in 2020, but Donald Trump believed that it was. And he became very worried about the stock market and became very concerned to get some kind of face-saving deal with China at the end of 2019 that would allow him exit from the trade war, allow him to claim a victory and get the stock market up again. And so when COVID began to materialize in China, he didn't want to say or do anything about it right away because his priority was to get this deal through, to get some exit from the trade war. 
COVID built and built through December and January and February. But Donald Trump's approach was one of denial, one of lavish compliments to the Chinese leadership because he had his eye on this, this trade agreement. And then it connected to his psychology where he began to interpret the COVID virus is like a critic and an enemy. And and the way he deals with critics and enemies is to say, put his hands over his eyes and fingers in the ears and say, la, 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 I can't see or hear you. So he denied that it was real and insisted it would go away. And so that created this kind of impulse to minimize. Now, some of it overlapped with things that really were deep and structural because the lockdowns bore very heavily on smaller businesses, which are real conservative and Republican bastion. And if you're a big business, you could roll with it or you could at least cope with the paperwork to get government aid. But smaller businesses had a lot of trouble and a lot of them were ruined. And that kind of person who is the heart and soul of any conservative party anywhere, that that kind of person was really mad over a lot of things. But particularly the vaccine denialism that has become such a big issue, it really did not have to, have to be that way. And in general, Republicans and conservatives do not have trouble with minimal requirements. I mean, they're very happy to have, um, say, you have to show a piece of paper to vote. They're very happy to say you have to have controls at borders, entry and exit. You, you could imagine under slightly different circumstances that a different kind of person who was in power in 2020 would have made the vaccines the defining issue of conservatism. After all, compared to the lockdowns, they are much less intrusive, much less expensive, and it's the way you get your economy back to normal. We are having now a debate that is a little bit more like a more traditional debate where especially many of the governors are saying what they should be saying is once you've been vaxxed, once you've been boosted, you know what? We have to take the risks. And, and especially we have to get the schools open. And that's where Glenn Young Kim is. And that is on his more pro-social days where Governor Rick DeSantis is. But because they can't deliver an unequivocal endorsement of the vaccination program, they can't do that in a way that is effective and appealing to moderate voters as well as the conservative base. It's an extraordinary development, isn't it? In a previous dialogue, David, I spoke to the author, Brendan Burrell, who's published a book on the story behind the the extraordinary development of the COVID-19 vaccines. And he attributes the innovative success in part to the kind of unorthodoxy and unconventional nature of the Trump administration that more establishmentarian administrations may have been less inclined to pursue an unconventional form like Operation Warp Speed. And yet, notwithstanding what ought to have been a, a major success or, or accomplishment, the, uh, the administration and other Republicans essentially talked down the vaccine. And, you know, it, there's a kind of interesting counterfactual about whether the 2020 presidential election outcome might have been different if the administration would have taken yes as an answer and, and really championed this, uh, this accomplishment. Well, one of the things that one noticed through the early part of the pandemic was there'd be these occasional public revelations of how crazily risk-averse public health professionals are. So the New York Times at intervals would do a roundup and they would call up 25 public health professionals and say, would you do X? Would you do Y? When do you think? And from my perspective anyway, and I'm not any kind of medical or public health professional, these guys seemed like neurotic, hysterical hypochondriacs that even after they were vaccinated, they wouldn't meet in small groups indoors. I mean, really? I mean, we all get sick. I mean, we, flu season used to come and go and we didn't all hide inside. So I think there was a, a more normal conservative politics that was available. I think Glenn Young Kim in Virginia has really found that path. And 
I think one of the things that is going to be um, a real Republican vulnerability in 2024 is that Rick DeSantis should have found that path, but because he was too worried about getting the nomination, he paid a lot of hostages to fortune uh, to some of the more extreme and hysterical elements on the right. I think there's also been, and this has been an X factor, is the unbelievable pathological irresponsibility of, of Fox News. They did not have to make this their signature issue, and especially their most popular show did not have to make vaccine skepticism their most popular issue. And look, that does come from places in the conservative world. It comes from a certain strain of anti-medical paranoia. It comes from certain strains of evangelical Christianity, which are obsessed with the idea of the beast of revelations and the sign of the beast. But normally, that it didn't have to be that way. It really could have been very easily another way. But the, the people are now trapped into positions that it's hard to retreat from. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best journalism, commentary, analysis, and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m., Into your email inbox, you'll receive our best journalism, the thoughts and analysis of our smartest columnists and contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public debate. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Let's set aside that conversation for now and come back to a point that you, you, you made earlier about the trade-offs inherent in the Canadian and American political systems. I think there's a tendency on the part of Canadians, especially over the past four years, to look down at American politics and think that the Canadian system is more inherently moderate, is more efficient. Think, for instance, of the ability of governments, particularly in a, in a majority parliament, to pass sweeping legislation um, and the juxtaposition against the so-called gridlock in Washington. But maybe I'd uh, just be grateful if you could kind of un- further unpack how we might think about the, the, the trade-offs. On one hand, the, the kind of dynamism yet unruliness of American politics. And on the other hand, the stability yet high degree of conformity in Canadian politics. Well, that is a classic pattern, and you can see it on many issues. There are many issues in Canadian life where vigorous debate would be would be welcome, and it doesn't happen. And, and one of the examples I often cite is you know, the most important constitutional reform in the last 30, 40 years, maybe ever, has been Canada's now created this whole new, in a federal system of provinces and federal government with municipalities having a subordinate role. Canada's now created, without really explicit constitutional reform without anybody really talking about a whole new level of government of these tribal sovereignties, um, these First Nation sovereignties. And uh, at enormous consequence to the development of the whole of, of, of the society. And that doesn't get talked about at all. That's all happening in courts. That's happening in bureaucracies. I venture if it were polled, it would turn out to be quite unpopular. And yet there has never been a way for people to organize to say, you know, let, let's have a discussion about this. And some of us are against it. Maybe no is also a possible answer. So you have these important discussions that, that don't happen. What you also have, and this is another worry I have for the Canadian future, is because of the intimacy of social media, there's now a tendency in Canada to import alien culture war issues into Canada. And I'm not sure that the future of Canadian politics is going to be as consensus-based as it the past was. 
And worse, I worry that a lot of these arguments are going to be about things that actually have not very little to do with Canada. I mean, I sometimes think there's a story, I'm not 100% sure this is a true story, but it's, it's good enough for our purposes here, that early in the Northern Ireland Troubles in 1969, um, when fighting began to break out between the Catholic neighborhoods and, and Protestant neighborhoods and then the police, that as, uh, and, then the, and then the army showed up, that the Catholic neighborhoods began hoisting Palestinian flags. And there was a kind of uneasy equilibrium for 48 or 72 hours. And then the Protestant neighbors, neighborhoods began hoisting Israeli flags. And it's hard to, I mean, it's pretty far from the Middle East to Northern Ireland, but they, they imported these symbols from an alien conflict to express their own conflict. And, uh, and they got this whole secondhand battle. And why do you need to do that? And I, I sometimes worry that, that, that Facebook and um, YouTube and Instagram and Twitter are going to bring those things to Canada where Canadians of right and left who have habits where they get along and negotiate and bargain in a more consensus system are going to be angry, but about things that have nothing to do or very little to do with Canada. Here's an example of one that has overtaken Britain. So the British left in 2021 became consumed by a demand for a, a new minimum wage in Britain of 15 pounds an hour. Now, how do they fix on 15 pounds an hour? Well, because the American debate was over a minimum wage, a national minimum wage of $15 an hour. And so when they imported this idea into the British context, they didn't adjust for the currency. They, they love the figure 15 so much. They said, that'll work for us. Well, but 15 pounds is a lot more than $15. And it, it just wasn't intelligent. But it, it, once you understand, this was not about what could the market bear in Great Britain? This was about, there was a symbol that had become uh, important to American progressives. And so that was going to be the important symbol for the labor left without regard to particularities. We may have more of that in all of our futures. And I don't know how it does anybody any good. I think it's such an important point, David. Um, and it's only heightened, of course, because of our proximity to the American market, our reliance on um, American news and other sources of, of cultural information. You know, a, a one example that I think is striking is in the 2015 federal election campaign, the issue of income inequality loomed much larger than it probably ought to have uh, if one stepped back and looked dispassionately at the state of inequality in Canada. It's not to say it's not a problem, but it was exacerbated because, of course, questions around inequality were dominating American politics at the time. And the risk, of course, is that we focus on issues and problems that are less pertinent to Canada at the expense of actually addressing issues that are more relevant and in need of, of attention. Um, and maybe with that in mind, let me just wrap up with the question of health care. One of the reasons that Canada has been subject to longer and more stringent public health restrictions is the issue of healthcare capacity. We have fewer ICU beds per share of population than the United States and several other peer jurisdictions, for, for, for instance. For a long time, the debate around uh, healthcare reform in Canada has been shaped by a kind of false binary between the Canadian system of universal single-payer healthcare and the American system, which is often characterized as inegalitarian and, you know, kind of hyper market oriented and, and so on, you know, as a keen observer of Canadian policy and politics, do you think um, that the pandemic experience may catalyze new interest and broader public support for a kind of deeper conversation about healthcare reform in Canada? 
I, I'm very pessimistic about that because one thing that Canadians and Americans really share in common is, especially at least in the English-speaking parts of Canada, weak foreign language skills and therefore weak interest in other countries. And so, you know, there are a couple dozen highly developed countries that have many different healthcare systems that are on a spectrum of from more statist to least statist. But it happens that the two English-speaking countries of North America are English majority in Canada, English speaking in the United States, next door to one another are, are the two outliers. The, the Canada is the most statist healthcare system in the developed world, and the American is the least centralized in the developed world. And so it's both countries look at the other and say, well, I guess that's the alternative. And the idea that, you know, well, the French have something that's in between and the Dutch do and the Swiss do, and that these are, it's, it's not binary. Uh, and there are a lot of ways that you could introduce more awareness of price into the Canadian system, more private initiative, more choice. You could do that without going all the way to what the Americans have. And the defects of the American system are, are overwhelmingly obvious. It costs much more. It delivers worse results. It, it makes people insecure. But on the other hand, it's big benefit that it's the major driver of innovation on the planet. Well, you can free ride on that. You know, you don't have to pay for it uh, to get the benefit of American innovation. That's what the whole vaccine debate showed is we all got the benefit of American innovation. What, they paid the price. But there is this false binary. And, you know, maybe if we could all learn a little, a little Dutch or Norwegian or one of the many languages spoken in Switzerland, we would see there are some other options. Maybe it's my relative youthfulness, but I'm a bit more optimistic about the prospect for reform. One of the extraordinary things, David, in recent months is that we've seen um, provincial governments from across the ideological spectrum, from the New Democrats in British Columbia to the CIQ in Quebec to the Conservatives in Alberta, for pragmatic reasons, increase the provision of private delivery to deal with these extraordinary backlogs that have accumulated in the context of the pandemic. I think it's right that we won't see a kind of big bang reform, but one wonders if in the aftermath of the pandemic, we'll start to see kind of creeping privatization as uh, governments look at the arithmetic of public spending on healthcare and the magnitude of these backlogs and come to the realization that uh, in the absence of something like greater private delivery, these backlogs are going to lead to you know, suffering and, and even deaths. We've had estimates from the Canadian Medical Association and others that a significant number of Canadians have perished in the context of the pandemic, not because of COVID-19, but because of the strain that the pandemic has placed on our, our, our public health care system. So it may be the case that uh, it's less of an ideological contest and more one driven by pragmatism. And one lesson I think that we all in every country ought to take from th this pandemic is how much more there is to health than, there, than health care. And as we discover that your individual vulnerability to COVID depends not just on the medical care you get, but on other aspects of your life, whether they're healthy or not. I, I mean, this is the thing I think the specialists keep trying to tell us is that if you are given a wish list of ways to make your country healthier, to give people more years of long life, things like seatbelts and motorcycle helmets and controlling addictive substances and reducing the role of alcohol and uh, dealing with obesity, th these are the things that actually are going to make the biggest impact on human life. And we've discovered that during the pandemic. That's what the, that's what this this phrase, comorbidities, whatever, this new word that we've all discovered. It, what, what it means is that you know, healthiness and, and health care are not the same thing. Well said, David. I, I, think, I think that's right, that that will certainly be 
uh, one of the takeaways from this experience, along with various others, including, of course, I think rethinking Canada's public health model. You know, the Public Health Agency of Canada will need to provide Canadians with some clear answers why, for instance, our stockpile of protective equipment had languished. You mentioned earlier questions around the country's vaccine production capacity. Uh, you know, it seems to me for all the talk about how the pandemic is going to change how we work and where we live and geopolitical relationships and so on, I can't help but think that the most significant kind of lasting impact will be in and around the question of healthcare, healthcare provision, and as you say, healthiness more, more broadly. Well, I think the thing that is going to be with us for a while is it does look like, um, and, and this isn't an, an ominous thing, but that these global supply chains, these just-in-time deliveries that affect things way beyond healthcare, those have taken a, a beating and they are not recovering nearly as fast as at the beginning it looked like they would. And we are going to be in, in a world that is going to take a while to re-knit itself. And many governments are going to find themselves thinking about, well, what, what do we make within our own borders? And one of the questions, and this is something that Canadian diplomats in Washington are working very hard on, is are the Americans who have greater capacity to go it alone, do they think of Canada as part of their structure? And do they try to keep trade flowing across the U.S.-Canadian border? Or do they interpret their desire to have more made in America capacity for their healthcare needs, exclude Canada and exclude Mexico too? Well, let's end the conversation there, David, because the future of the Canada-US relationship in general, and in particular, the potential for a, a kind of continental approach to reshoring may be something we want to take up in a future from dialogue. But let me just say on behalf of our viewers and listeners and my colleagues at the Hub, how honored we are to have you involved in this new enterprise that we launched uh, at the Hub in, in April 2021. I know I speak on behalf of everyone when I say how terrific it is to have you back with a platform to share your insights and analysis about um, Canadian policy and politics. And I look forward to doing this with you on a biweekly basis going forward. Thank you very much. And, and thank you uh, for viewers for joining us for this inaugural episode of From Dialogues. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.